Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, turn again to the Old Testament book of Haggai, Haggai, page 769, if you're using the uh, Bibles we have in front of you. Looking at Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10 and to the end of this little book. Our study series in the book of Ezra is, of course, linked to Haggai, because when we came to Ezra chapter 5, we found a turning point in which God sent his prophet Haggai to his people, and something changed. It's only one verse stated in Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, but we have the two chapters of Haggai to know what Haggai said that changed those things. If I were to ask you today, how's your health? You kind of know, don't you? I mean, you know what hurts, <laughs> what works or doesn't work. If I were to ask you about your finances, you have some idea. You know how the income and the outgo, plus or minus, is working. You know basically what you own. If I were to ask you about your job, you kind of know how things are going, what your status is, maybe how long you intend to do that job. If I were to ask you how you're doing spiritually, how do you measure that? How do you measure your spiritual health? Do you, do you say, well, you know, I'm coming to church pretty regular. I read the Bible about, you know, this much. Do you measure spiritual health based on uh, how guilty you feel at the moment? How do you measure spiritual health? As we come to Haggai 2, verse 10, the prophet is challenging the Jewish people to seriously evaluate their spiritual state. It's an important moment in a new season of life because God has brought 50,000, they're counted in Ezra chapter 2, 50,000 Jews from exile in Babylon, brought them back to the nation of Israel, and their main purpose was worship. They were to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians some 50 years before. And that's exactly what they began to do. Until they didn't. Until they stopped. Just at the very foundation stone level, they stopped. And we've seen that there are several reasons why they stopped rebuilding, stopped obeying, stopped doing the very thing God had called them back to the nation to do. One was discouragement. Because some remembered Solomon's temple, and this one was just not so grand. Discouragement. The second reason was fear, because the local Samaritans from that area were making threats about, we're going to tell the king what you're doing. Discouragement, fear. But the third reason we discover in Haggai is that as they delayed, selfish complacency set in. Set in. And they became more focused on rebuilding and even decorating their own house while God's house, nothing happened. And so God sent Haggai the prophet, who in chapter 1 of Haggai we see rebuked them for their delay and their complacency, and they responded. In chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord worked in them, the leadership and the people, and they went back to work. That was the first message of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, was the second message. 
one month later in which God spoke to them through Haggai and said, Be strong. Keep going. Don't fear. And they continued to work. We come to the third message today in chapters 2, verses 10 and following. The third message is two months, two months later still, so it's three months into the rebuilding restart. And basically the message is, now I want to talk to you about your hearts. You're doing the right thing. Is your heart right? I want you to, there's a term used three times later on in this passage today. Give careful thought. It's three times. Give careful thought. Give careful thought. And so wherever you are at today spiritually, August 18, I think God would like us to give careful thought to what is going on inside of us spiritually as we look at this passage. Where are you at? Are you looking on the inside to see where God is taking you? Haggai 2, let's read beginning at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated or holy meat in the fold of his garment, that's how they did it, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it, that food, become holy because something else holy touched it? The priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there at the altar in the temple is defiled. Given that they had now been obeying God and back to the project for some three months, it's a bit surprising, maybe to us, that God has a tone of rebuke. They were doing the right things. Why was that not adequate? They are, they are at the altar, which they built when they first arrived, or maybe he's thinking of the temple that they are building, that what they would be offering there is going to actually be defiled. Why? Why is he probing their spiritual condition and questioning their motivation. He he is addressing this third message not to all the people but to the priests. You see that? God is starting with the spiritual leaders and that's what he does. They were on board with restarting the project. Back in chapter 1 verse 14, the Lord stirred the heart of Zerubbabel and Joshua he was the high priest as well as the people. So the priests were with it's not like they were dragging their feet. And yet God probes their heart. So what is this thing about clean, unclean, holy, unholy food? These were important spiritual issues under the Old Covenant. Um, Jews living at, at that time, if uh, the law said that if they touched something unclean like a dead body, uh, or if they had open sores, or even if there were some of the just the regular bodily functions, they were in an unclean state and as as such, they were not allowed to go and worship at the tabernacle or later the temple. And we can now realize that some of those instructions actually uh, were crucial for the health, physical health 
of the people, but they, there was always a spiritual lesson, more importantly. And the idea was that they were to get the concept that when you come to worship Almighty God, you need to be clean. Spiritual preparation, the spiritual state was very important. That's what, that's what Haggai is drawing attention to for these exiles. Because he's, he's, he's going to teach them that just doing more religious things, making sure the activity and the, and the wheels are turning in worship is not enough. It does not prove your spiritual life. The example he gives is that if, if, he, if, if, the, if the priest, this is probably referring to the priest carrying holy meat, because, see, some of the, when you brought your sin offering as, as a worshiper, you would bring that and, and the priest would receive it and they'd have to carry, some of it would get burnt, some of it would be what they could eat, but it was now special, it was now holy meat. So if you, as you're carrying that, now Leviticus 6.27 said that if you carry it in your fold, that's just part of the, it's like part of the meat, so the, so the garment is holy. But what about if that garment touched something else? Some food. Does cleanness transfer? Does, does it make everything else holy? And the answer was simple and obvious for the priest. No, you cannot catch holiness. It's kind of like you can't catch health. If your spouse has a bad cold or the flu, can you make them well by kissing them because you're well? No, it doesn't work that way. But it, it does work the opposite, right? You can, you can contaminate, you can, you can transfer germs that cause a disease. And so the one issue is you can't transfer purity, but you can transfer contamination. Again, the answer to the second question is, is, is easy and obvious for, for, the, for the priests. So if a, bo- if a dead body touches you are rather you, you you're unclean because of a dead body and then you touch that food yeah then it's that food is unclean numbers chapter 19 whenever somebody whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean 7 days he shall cleanse himself with the water on the 3rd day and on the 7th day and so be clean whoever touches a dead person the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the lord so here's the other issue you can't go worship. It's not just that the food will become unclean. You cannot worship in that condition because coming before God is a special holy thing when you come together with the people of God. If your little boy is a ring bearer at a family wedding, you're going to get this little special tux for him or suit or clean white shirt or something and he's going to look very very special very un little boyish and so after you get him dressed you will you will say no if he says can I go play in the park next to the church because you know exactly what's going to happen if he goes and plays in the park he will no longer be fit to be that clean little boy walking down that aisle and in a similar way as believers we are called to be clean and set apart for the purpose of worship and evidently God knew, so he told Haggai, that some of the priests were not prepared, at least. Some of the people, or, or that was a temptation, or he didn't want to see a repeat of what happened before the exile, and so he said, think about it. Just because you're going to do the right thing, does that make you 
holy. So were the priests, you know, harboring selfish thoughts, immoral thoughts, harboring grudges? What was it that was polluting their sacrifice, if they were to sacrifice with what's going on inside of them? I think the lesson for us is that we have to take what we do here very seriously, probably for all of us more seriously. This is not just a routine. This is not just something that is a good thing for you know, us and our kids to do. This is a time when we are expecting to hear from God. We're expecting to speak to Him in praise. And so we, it's not just casual. If, if you were to pray before you ever come through those doors that God would speak to you, God would use you, that you would be able to praise him well today, do you suppose that there would be a refining process in your own heart that would make your experience with God and make your experience with the people of God unique and powerful in your life? If, if you prepared, if you thought through, is there, is there something that would be keeping me from just embracing the reality of being with God's people in God's presence. Is worship, is deciding to worship a casual decision for you? Should we go today, honey? I don't know. Got a lot to do. Yeah, well, you know, we could watch it online. <laughs> we could do this or, no, let's go because, you know, we can probably meet some friends after. Do you see how we kind of treat it like deciding to go to McDonald's sometimes. Do you feel like it or not? Do we see how serious it is to be able to approach God in worship? And so he says to them, priests, you're going to be doing the right thing. Right now the building process of this temple, you're doing the right thing, but it's possible that what you do when you go to worship is defiled why? Because there's something else going on inside. The principle is that religious activity is not the same as godliness. A couple of examples, Old Testament and New. King Saul in the Old Testament was told expressly by the prophet Samuel, don't, it was before a battle, don't offer a sacrifice, wait for me. Guess what Saul did? As the, as the deadline came for this battle, Samuel hadn't showed up, and he disobeyed direct orders from the prophet of God and made a sacrifice. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of, of rams. So, Yes, you brought the sacrifice, but you weren't supposed to. He is, God's looking for obedience, not religious activity. Micah 6, another prophet earlier, said, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? In other words, if you just went overboard and you were just, you were just doing all the religious activity that you could even imagine, you had thousands of rams to sacrifice. He's told you, oh man, what's good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God cares a lot more about our integrity, justice. Can people trust you to do what's right and fair? 
God cares a lot more about kindness. Is, is there grace in your relationships? God cares a lot more about humility. Do you, are, you, are you a person who readily says, yes, it was my fault? Do, do, God's looking at the heart, not just adding up religious activity. Matthew. New Testament, the, the Pharisees were classic hypocrites. Jesus used that word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. There were certain processes that to keep these Old Testament laws, the Pharisees had added another layer of laws of how you should wash your plates. And he says, you do that on the outside. You know, it's an inside. Inside the cup is gross. You never wash the inside. And that's what they look like to God. So he calls their attention to the hypocrisy. As the priests are hearing this message from Haggai, I imagine they are at the temple site where this is happening. Surely the priests are involved in the building process. So picture yourself there. You hear the sounds of the work being done on God's temple. You hear, you hear the, the hammer and the chisel of the, the stone cutters setting layer upon layer of stone. You, you hear the, the oxen snorting as they're pulling heavy loads of additional rock to continue the process. You, you hear carpenters and you hear foremen shouting out instructions about how you put that door in place and getting the hinge where it belongs. And so you're here. It sounded like obedience. There's this activity going on. People are busy. Lord, aren't you being a little bit hard on them? At this moment of, of, of progress, to say, you can be defiling this place by working on it with sin in your heart. All the work we do all the ministry we do, can be tainted by our hearts. Attitudes don't change just because we conform activities. It's like being for, okay, I'll say I'm sorry, okay, I'll go to church, okay, I'll turn off the TV. <laughs> it's pretty empty. You, you, you've experienced that in marriage relationships, perhaps, that Okay. It's just not, the heart is not there and, and our spouse always knows it. Haggai's, Haggai's illustration about the corpse is intentionally uh, repulsive. They would realize you, you just can't touch a corpse and then touch food. And the concept is that basically it's like you're, you're dragging a, a corpse in with you into the temple of God when you come with a polluted soul. So how do you know how you're doing spiritually? If you attend church pretty regularly, and you're basically a nice person to other people, are you doing well spiritually? If you attend church, you're nice to people, and you go to an ABF or a Bible study, and you try to read your Bible every day, now you're doing pretty good, right? If you attend church regularly, you read your Bible, you're nice to people, you go to a Bible study, and you're involved in serving on a regular basis, surely now you are at some kind of premier or gold status or something. You know how we think sometimes? It's just like 
checking the boxes. I mean, these are all things we talk about. They're important to get to know one another, to grow spiritually. We, we, these are activities that are vital. And, and, and Haggai is not saying they shouldn't be rebuilding the temple. He's not saying you shouldn't bring the sacrifice. He says, look inside at the heart. One of the most disheartening kinds of news that I'll notice through the decades is when there is a high-profile pastor, worship leader, Christian leader, author, who suddenly is exposed as a spiritual failure in some dramatic way. Immorality, lack of integrity, abrasive personalities, or recently in the news, several who, it's actually apostasy where they have completely lost their confidence in the word of God. They're like the classic example of what Haggai is talking about. Because here are men, or sometimes women, who are full-time doing exactly what you think they should be doing in spiritual leadership. While somewhere inside their soul had been corroded and corrupted. And then there's a sudden fall. And it's simply what can happen incrementally in each of our lives that we are doing and, and, and replacing that or, or, or assuming that that means we are being. You can have perfect church attendance. But that does not compensate if you're cheating on your expense forms at work or hiding your addiction from your spouse or, or, or what it might be. It's not like you can balance, okay, eh, we're about even. I think we're good. Another principle here is we need to know what or who is influencing us spiritually. Sin is contagious, holiness is not. Are you catching sinful attitudes from someplace or someone? Do you know who it might be that has drawn you to the place where maybe 10, 15 years ago you understood certain things right and wrong and now you're I don't know do you know who or how it might be that, that you find yourself with a much more negative critical attitude towards, towards other believers do you know your weakness of spirit do you know who it is there someone at church someone at work someone you're getting so close that you're just kind of rubbing off on each other Are there certain input of, 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 of shows, blogs, books that are teaching you corrupted ideas? We're able to pull away and cloister and sit on a mountaintop by ourselves. We're supposed to be influencing the world, salt and light. But who is influencing who? Do we know? Do we recognize if we're influencing the world or the world is influencing us? Haggai continues addressing the, the priests. We don't know if others were listening or not. But now he begins to use that phrase, give careful thought, verses 15 through 19. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. Probably referring not to the time 15 years earlier but rather the restart uh, three months earlier 
when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, that is, grain, they were expecting to see 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, oops, there's only 20. God says, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Three months ago, remember we restarted. Give careful thought, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And in the last little phrase has an implied but. From this day on, I'll bless you. So there's rebuke, but it's paired with a promise. Give careful thought. Evaluate. From this day on, so the the concept in these verses is that things are changing, but there's a very serious tone as if Haggai wants to assure that every one of these exiles who has now, for three months, been doing the right thing, that they have learned the lessons of the past 15 years in which they had been disobeying by their delay. And in fact, he's reviewing what he already shared in chapter 1. That's the reason you had financial struggles the last 15 years. The spiritual dynamic here is pretty important for us to think about because sometimes we, we learn a lesson and then we, you know, things go better and then we forget the lesson. So he said, I, want, I don't want to lose the impact of this. Those poor harvests you had were my direct discipline those 15 years. Your grain yields were down 50%. You expected a, a heap of grain, 20 measures, it was only 10. How about the grape production? That's why you diversify you know, in, in farming. If this crop fails, at least maybe you got this one. Nope, he says. That one's down 60%, from 50 down to 20. And God says, I did that. Remember that, priests? And they'd have to say, yes, we remember Haggai. It's been a long 15 years financially. We've been barely making it. God says, yep, that's why. Amos, chapter 4, verse 9, has an almost identical prophetic message, also from God, just to a different prophet, almost 200 years earlier, way before the exile. Amos says from God, I caused blight, mildew, lucus, locusts, but you did not return to me. I did it. Now, if you think about this from God's perspective, God's eternal, it's like nothing surprises God. I had people going through this back then, had to tell them that. It's like raising several siblings. Oh, yeah, now they're in that stage. God is doing that with each stage, but it's all written down so that we might learn from the previous spiritual siblings. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, New Testament, Paul writes, These things happened to them, Old Testament. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. We need to see the cycles. We need to see the patterns of the Old Testament to be able to live effectively today. So Haggai says, what have you learned from your financial struggles? The 50%, the 60% losses you experienced 
For 15 years, you didn't get it. For 15 years, it didn't cause you to repent. Probably many of you remember the uh, economies after 9-11 and uh, 2008 recession. Money that you had invested and expected to have there for retirement suddenly sank by almost those percentages. It gets our attention. Just an interesting observation in our historical attendance records at Open Door, the two most rapid spikes in attendance came the year to two years after 9-11 and the year, first two years of the recession, 2008-2010. Not necessarily even that we had more people, just everybody came more. So I don't know, maybe if it was conscious or not, can't prove it was because of fear, but somehow... It's a good thing because God will use financial fears and others to get our attention. And yet we don't read this as a threat because we see where God is going. It's preparing them for a blessing. He says, I just don't want you to lose the impact of what you've been through, but I want you to make sure your heart is being purified through the discipline you've experienced so that you get the benefit of the discipline. Reviewing, again, from Hebrews, this great classic passage of what God does, what he's thinking in some of these situations. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone he accepts as a son. He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. This is about holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so so Haggai is saying, I want you to recognize when there is a link between certain problems you've experienced and some area of sin. Now, that's not to say there's always that direct link. Please understand that. Many times the problems we face are actually because of somebody else's sin. Uh, That's a common occurrence. Dysfunction, abuse, addictions always touch other people. And it's part of our sinful world. Just as there are, there are accidents that happen, you know, it was, a, it was somebody else who was the drunk driver and, and yet it's our family that suffered or whatever it might be. So, so God's not addressing problems caused by the sins of others. He's addressing here problems that sometimes we cause because sometimes we see that these choices did cause this. Th- think carefully. When we experience God's discipline, He is not punishing us with what we deserve. If you are a believer in Christ, you are, you are way past getting what you deserve. Because Jesus Christ took what we deserved. And it's fully paid at the cross. So it's not about getting what we deserve. Discipline is simply God investing in our holiness. Like any good parent does. And so as we think of our sinful mistakes of the past, they are not meant to make us wallow in them with regret the rest of our life. When we think about the sinful mistakes of our past, they are meant to keep us in a state of 
positive repentance. Not regret, but repentance. And so if you find yourself living in a kind of wallowing in regret, a couple of things. Either there has not been repentance, it's a possibility, or you have not embraced God's grace for what he has already forgiven and for the the great purpose he had in mind to draw you to himself in love and holiness and purity. For 15 years, end of verse 17, Haggai says, you were going through this thing, but you didn't recognize it because you didn't return. You didn't repent. That was the purpose. And so if God's message to these exiles seems a bit harsh, given that they had already resumed obediently building the temple, realize it came from his great love, and that's what he now describes in his intention in verses 18 and 19. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to your restart, the day when the foundation of the temples was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not borne fruit. We need to understand the, uh, the, the agricultural references here. The 24th day of the ninth month in the Jewish calendar is December 18 in our calendar. And uh, in December in Israel, uh, harvest is past. By about three months. September is most of the harvest. Some finishes up in in October. So harvest is done. Also by December 18, the seeding has been done of the grains for the next year. So that's where they're at in in the yearly cycle. So probably what Haggai is saying in verse 19, is there any seed left in the barn? The answer is no. Why? The seed's out in the field. It's under the dirt. It's just sitting there, waiting for next year's crop. But we don't know yet what's going to happen. Same with the reference to the vine, fig trees, and pomegranates, the fruit. So the grains are are, are planted, sown in in the ground. And what about the fruits? Fruit trees and vines and and so forth. Those plants that go year by year. Those, he says, they're all picked over. The harvest is all done. But yet you don't have anything on them for this year yet. So he says, you are right now at this point in the agricultural cycle where you know that the, that the, that the crops of the last 15 years have been poor. Do you know about the future? No, you don't. It, farming is like the least predictable profession because it all depends on the weather. There's a lot more gambling in farm country than in Las Vegas. But God knows. And God says, while you don't know a thing about next year's crop, he says, I do. From this day on, I will bless you. And so God's intent through this entire process of this 15 years of discipline was not to punish, but to direct them to this very issue of their personal holiness so that their activity, the religious activity, would be matched by their inner purity so that he would be free to be able to bless them the way he wants to bless them. And the principle is that God always blesses obedience in some way. Now as we look at this, it's sometimes a struggle in our mind as New Testament believers to think about a 
prosperity thing. Under the Old Covenant, especially, God often was teaching principles of obedience through the reward system. It's kind of like you do with your younger children, where you can more fully control uh, behavior. Good behavior is rewarded, bad behavior is disciplined. But they need to grow into a point at which you realize that it's not, life isn't always like that. Sometimes things are unfair. In a similar way, we, in our, I think in our, in our New Testament day, with greater revelation and fuller understanding, it's like we should be a little more uh, grown up to understand that sometimes God says no to blessings, even though we are obeying. A couple of things from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So Paul was experiencing the uh, thorn in the flesh, a physical ailment, and he prayed earnestly that God would take it away, and God said no, and Paul says, I get it now, because he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is available to you spiritually now in your physical weakness. Ah, so Paul says, I get that one. There was a spiritual blessing instead of the physical blessing, and that's actually, I, 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 I more highly value that. Same way, Philippians 4, when, when uh, Paul says, I, I know what it means to be in financial want, hunger. And then sometimes I've had plenty, and what I've realized is that while I don't always get the financial blessing I want, I've learned a higher spiritual value that God is teaching me to be content in every situation. So sometimes blessings and obedience don't exactly correspond today. But sometimes they do. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians in that chapters 8 and 9 where there's so many crucial financial uh, principles. Paul said, as you give generously... Our God will supply enough seed for you to eat and enough seed for sowing, which the idea is, as you give generously, I will provide for your needs and I'll actually make it possible for you to give even more. And I think we could have a long line of testimonies in this room at how God has indeed uh, done that, perhaps in your life. What we can say for sure is that God always blesses obedience in some way. Physically, or spiritually, or both, now or later. But we can be confident that you will never regret obeying God. No one ever looked back and said, boy, I wish I hadn't obeyed God on that one. Because it's the nature of God to, in some way, bless obedience. That's what he wanted to do for these people. He had so carefully and powerfully brought back to the nation. We're not going to look at verses 20 to 23 in detail, though we will read them because they illustrate that God was desiring to bless Zerubbabel. He was the governor, he was the leader of the project. And so the last part, or the, really the fourth prophetic message, is actually the second one on this same day. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his, own, of his brother. In brief, God is saying his version of, I got the whole world in my hands. 
And I shake it up however I want to. Specifically, I can take care of anybody who's ruling that seems too powerful or too evil. I can turn that thing around however I want. That should give us a lot of assurance about world or national news. He can do anything he wants. Does it all the time. Specifically, though, Zerubbabel, with all that power, I want to bless you. So on that day, verse 23, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, this is all something far future. I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. The simplest understanding of this is that as God wanted to honor Zerubbabel, he was going to do it in a far future time, long after his life. We find Zerubbabel's name in the New Testament, in Matthew. Chapter 1, the royal genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find that Zerubbabel continued the royal line. He was a vital link between the kings of Israel, the Davidic kings, and Jesus himself. Matthew 1, verse 12, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. We'll skip a few names. Verse 16, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, was one of the last kings of Israel, the last Davidic king, and he wasn't a good one. And God judged him, put, as it were, a judgment or curse upon him. And it would seem like nothing is, that's the end of that. And yet Jeconiah becomes the guy who actually continues the line because Shealtiel and then Zerubbabel, who is uh, perhaps born in the Babylonian captivity, is a godly man. He becomes the governor. He comes and rebuilds the temple. And God says, I'm going to bless you in a unique way. And you're going to be like a signet ring. And and in brief, it seems to point to the fact that he will continue the line through Jesus Christ. And Zerubbabel Zerubbabel won't even experience it in his lifetime. Would it be okay with you if God had in mind something for your descendants to be blessed instead of you? Would it be okay with you if someday in heaven you discover that your grandchildren or great-grandchildren were blessed because of the impact you had on their father or their their grandmother or, or whatever it might be. Would it be okay with you? I'm pretty sure it would. And if you ever doubt that, be sure to talk to Zerubbabel someday in heaven because you will never regret obedience or the impact it might have on those you know and love. Give careful thought. Give careful thought. Give careful thought. Let's just, in closing, use the 15-year sample, since this was a 15-year lesson that they were failing to learn, to do some some self-evaluation. We put 12 things here. Um, There's copies of it back at the back table. We'll go through these kind of quickly. Where were you spiritually in 2004? Have you come to faith in Christ since then? That'd be a pretty significant step, right? So some of you, that's your story. You're different than 15 years ago because 
You've put your faith in Christ. He's your Savior now. Have you grown significantly significantly in your knowledge of God's Word? Is there a, a steady pattern where you're adding line upon line through, through studies, through your personal readings, through messages? Are you, are you growing to really know God's will and God's Word? How about your integrity? Do people trust you more today than they did 15 years ago? Has your reputation changed? Have you grown in your integrity? Have you grown in moral purity? Do you approach moral temptations differently now than you used to? You understand your temptations. You know how to avoid and keep your heart pure. Do you desire worship more and come better prepared to worship? Is, is the time that we, we gather, whether it's to, to sing or to be under the word or to pray, is that, does that hold more special focus for you than, than it used to? Do you notice sooner when someone has a bad influence on you? So many times you hear the story, oh, I can't believe, you know, in my teenage years, my college years, and I was running with the wrong crowd, and... Okay, you get, you get that. So, do you now notice, with greater discernment, when someone is dragging you down in some way spiritually? Do you sense the Holy Spirit prompting or warning you more frequently? Or it's not just conscience. We as believers actually have the Spirit of God within us. And as we become more sensitive to him, we, we recognize, as, 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 as uh, Paul said in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is in you. And we can recognize that grieving of something internal. Internal always is the key. Have you taken responsibility to impact a particular person spiritually? This is written to priests, leaders, that's where it's particularly crucial. Have you grown to the place where your life, you realize, is not just about your life, but you are to have an impact? Are there certain people, names, faces that come to mind going, yeah, that's who I'm seeking to. Whether they respond is up to them, but you're seeking to impact. Have certain trials taught you something to avoid? Have you noticed some of the cause and effect when there was God's discipline in your life going... I don't want to do that again. Have some trials taught you to trust God more? That, that, that's, see, see even, even when the trial is not because of our sin, there's something God wants to do to grow us so that we would trust him more. Not become more cynical, but trust him more. Do we see blessings, whether they're spiritual or physical, resulting from obedience? Have we already begun to see, though some may wait till later, there's... God's sovereign delays and timing, but I'm beginning to see how, you know, this has made a difference. I, it's so great to have a clean heart. You see some of those effects. And finally, have your blessings made you more grateful? Because God, with his desire to bless us, as we begin to experience that, we can begin to almost feel like we earned it or deserved it. We, we revert back to that works thing so easily. Instead of it, this is about gratitude. God has done this for me, and I praise him for it. May God take his word, probe our heart, and transform us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are 
uh, anticipating what you will do continually in our life as we devote our attention to you, to your word, as we seek to be with people who will impact us towards you and your holiness. Help us to realize the effect people have on us, the effect we can have on others. Help us to be more discerning, more aware. And may you uh, transform us from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.